Hi everybody, welcome. We're really glad you could join us today. This is the continuation of our practical webinar series on material performance. Today we're focusing on the life cycle costing framework and its application to sealed roads. My name's Elena Gardner. I'm the communications manager at Austroads and I'll be moderating today's session. I acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the custodians of the land from which we're broadcasting today. I pay my respect to elders past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitangi and Maori as the original peoples of New Zealand. So a little bit about Austroads, we're the peak organisation of Australasian Transport and Traffic Agencies. Our focus is to support our member organisations to deliver an improved road transport network. We use a program management approach to deliver our work and each program is focused on an operational area of the road system. The project we're discussing today was delivered under the Assets Program, which is managed by Ross Guppy and coordinated by Eliz Esteban. So some housekeeping for today's session. The presentation will run for an hour and a half today and include three short Q&A sessions. We do record all of our webinars and we'll email you once the recording is available on our website. We also distribute our webinars via podcast and you can subscribe to our channel by searching for Austroads in your podcast app. Today's presentation slides can be downloaded from the handout section in your sidebar. You'll find that over on the right-hand side of your screen. If you run into any technical, technical problems, please let me know. Um, you can use the questions section of your sidebar for that. But just a quick tip, if you do lose sound or your picture freezes, that is most likely an issue with your connection. Closing your browser and rejoining the session via your email registration usually fixes that problem. So also in the sidebar, in the handout section, you'll find the two reports that uh, this work is based on. Um, if you're viewing this as a recording, you can download, download those reports uh, for free from our website. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our presenters today. We have Tyrone Toole, Phil Hunt and Renita Sen. We'll first hear from Tyrone. His experience covers highway engineering and project management in over 20 countries. He specialises in research and advice related to the management and design of low and high volume roads. Tyrone will then be joined by Renita Sen. Renita is our Senior Technology Leader in the New South Wales office and manage, manages consulting and research projects related to road asset management. Currently, Renita works on the development of pavement management systems. Our third expert today is Phil Hunt. Phil has nearly three decades of experience in the road design and construction industry, specifically in the concept, planning, design, construction, maintenance, and asset management of roads and bridges. So just in terms of what we're covering today, first off, Tyrone will provide a recap of the study background and the factors influencing material performance. We'll then have a Q&A session and you can have your questions um, answered with um, any of the uh, material that Tyrone covers. Then Tyrone and Renita will take us through the life cycle costing framework. And Renita is going to showcase a pavement life cycle costing tool that is currently being developed. And that will be followed by a Q&A session. And then Phil will take us through a detailed case study based in central Western Queensland, which will be followed by a further Q&A session. And then Tyrone will just cap off with some concluding remarks. So um, I'm gonna hand over now to Tyrone so that he can start the presentation. Hi Tyrone, it's great to have you with us today. 
Thank you, Elena. It's a pleasure to have been involved in this uh, this project. It really takes me back to a lot of the foundation uh, work in my career. Uh, I'd also like to acknowledge the guidance uh, direction that we received from Mick Savage uh, of Austroads in Ipwia, who was the project manager uh, for this project. So beginning uh, with a recap on the study background and factors influencing performance. The project builds on a lot of experience gathered over time, uh, performance evidence gathered as well, and with a, with a view to improve the appropriate use of uh, substandard, marginal and standard materials, and particularly low to medium volume roads. The, the thrust behind a lot of this has been to provide both uh, practitioners with some experience, but also inexperienced practitioners with an update on, and guidance on how they could take forward and uh, utilize these materials as best as possible in sustaining in a sustainable way. There are two uh, products from this uh, project, WM6143, the evaluation tool and user guide, which has been introduced uh, earlier, uh, and also covering materials assessment. In the, in the last webinar, the technical basis, which, which covers uh, uh, materials assessment also, but also uh, goes into the life cycle costing framework and example case studies. We will be concentrating on the technical basis today, and any of the references that we make through the presentation will be in relation to the different uh, sections of, of the report. The technical basis, as, as was covered uh, a few weeks ago, fit for purpose material use, we need to be considering predicting and controlling performance. And we've shown examples of that, of the risk factors that we face. Uh, in the different environments, we need to be considering these. And then uh, a life cycle cost assessment. And again, I'll be emphasizing some aspects of that, both in terms of it's in many ways conventional. So the key is really getting an understanding of the materials and environment that you're working with. We're not creating a new framework, we're utilizing existing frameworks but informing it with our, uh, the characteristics of the locations within which uh, roads are built and maintained. The technical basis and the guide are supported by case studies. Today it's sealed roads. Uh, in a few weeks time, we'll be covering examples on unsealed roads. As emphasized, uh, in the earlier webinar, the key that we've been emphasizing is really working through the different characteristics of traffic, material characteristics, moisture characteristics uh, to determine this fit for purpose use and undertake a risk assessment. Through the materials assessment uh, model, it's from a qualitative point of view, informed of, of course by performance. With the life cycle costing framework, we then 
we're then put, we're then quantifying it a lot more in a in a cost based and a predictive manner. So the aspects determined by material, the characteristics, etc., and we'll show some examples. Uh, we wish to be able to accommodate those. We need to be able to assess the performance risk of those different materials, the moisture limiting design requirements, which again would influence the performance. There might be other ways to improve the materials through stabilization or modification, blending, etc. I'm not going to touch that in detail. Zia touched it a few weeks ago and showed examples from Ostrode's uh, Guide to Pavement Technology 4D. And so th there is general guidance on how to uh, improve materials where the un untreated materials might not be appropriate. In terms of pavement performance, what we're emphasizing here is at the center of that, the pavement performance aspect, as uh, we well understand, there's materials contributions, there's design, let's say some controllable uh, variables, specifications, design guidance, etc. Construction, we need to be ensuring we get uh, good production, appropriate and good quality uh, processing and and laying of materials, good dryback, which is an important feature, uh, which which aids future performance. There are some variables which we can't control. We have to work with. We we may be in areas with non-standard materials or naturally incurring materials. We can't just phone up a quarry. A lot of the development of those specifications related to use and how to uh, utilize these materials effectively has been based on experience, historical observation, etc. That's not to say there's not been a, an, a vast amount of knowledge assembled, which there has been, but that whole care and attention, and I sometimes say art of working with the, the natural environment and materials is absolutely fundamental. So again, we'll be considering uh, the list of uh, indicators over there on the left, performance, different measures of roughness, rutting, cracking, uh, other distresses, and uh, strength, structural adequacy, influences, again, on how, uh, how those influence uh, performance. We need to, as I mentioned, account for traffic and moisture loads, and timely and effective uh, maintenance. And I'll emphasize both of those. I mean, it, it's uh, a question that's been posed to us a number of times, not just on the traffic and moisture side, but on the effective maintenance. And uh, my focus, as usual, a lot of people may have heard this through uh, various communications catching preventative maintenance in the fullest sense of the, the, the meaning uh, is absolutely vital for these types of materials, which we will describe. So at any time during the webinar, please, any thoughts, any questions along the way, uh, pass them through and uh, Elena will manage responses to them appropriately. From the 
WAM 2101 study, which concluded two years ago, we have carried on from there. What I'd like to say is there was a big foundation of information to begin with. The green guide over on the right here, a document covering pavement materials within Australia, very comprehensive, good examples of the whole range of materials around the country. What we've put also onto that, we've emphasized the use of a classical surface rock types classification from these surface deposits and pedogenic type, duricrust type materials across the sedimentary materials and more uh, hard rock sources that people would be uh, more familiar with. At times, those can also be weathered. And we've stressed that link. And now one of the reasons we've really stressed this link is we've been trying to encourage people to describe things in a geotechnical fashion, augment it with engineering classification. And it's so that we can help transfer knowledge around the country. Uh, a local name might have a great meaning to uh, local people, local practitioners, but how do we translate that? Uh, across the country or across the globe. It's usually through these other standard classification systems, et cetera, which we've also adapted and improved over time, uh, including in classifying and dealing with these types of materials. We've also drawn on a whole suite of other work, and this is not exhaustive, WQ uh, best practice guidelines going back into the 90s and obviously all the experience that was drawn into that. The work in Western Australia, they had a good thorough re-look at naturally occurring materials. The work by TRL going back to the time I worked with them and beyond uh, on Road Note 31, our colleagues in Southern Africa and elsewhere around the globe. So these have all contributed to our thinking and it's that experience that we're drawing on. Fundamental, however, to all of this is we are designing pavements. Yes, pavements can evolve, but once we're putting significant traffic on it, managing it as a state controlled road or a national highway, etc., country roads, local government roads, design is important. It would be wrong, uh, in a sense, if we were testing a fit-for-purpose material, but it failed due to the, the structure failed because of inadequate foundation support. So there's uh, certain essentials that we need to be addressing. And here's an example of a, a simple design chart. We also need to take into account that those foundation and drainage conditions the moisture in the drains, moisture through excess flooding, rainfall, etc. perhaps a permeable surface having been left beyond what I would call the stitch in time. The strength characteristics of the pavement materials and the foundation can change dramatically. And I'll illustrate that with an example or two later. So important in the fit for purpose use of what may be the upper part of the pavement, we need to prevent failure for other reasons or compensate and address it, have solutions to address that. 
moisture probability was an emphasis in our materials assessment. Uh, and we're very familiar with how extreme variations in weather patterns occur ac across Australia and much of the world. Uh, we're also concerned about changing climate conditions. Our recommendations through the materials assessment has focused on the on the World Meteorological Organization's standard 30-year period. People might quite understandably be concerned about uh, what the climate is now or will be into the future. And just to emphasize that in this diagram, which is looking at the rainfall deciles across uh, Australia in the last two decades, you see the lowest in record periods of drought, some neutral periods, the highest on record, and then you also see the distribution. And one of the examples we'll be uh, going through is in uh, Western Queensland, and you can see in this area here around 210 to 11, extremely uh, high. Uh, rainfall periods at that time, cyclonic activity hitting the state and a massive reconstruction program. We saw some uh, severe examples last year, but much more concentrated over in 2009 there to the right. But you can also see some similar patterns earlier at the beginning of the uh, millennia. So being able to work with that and assess risk is absolutely important. One of the depictions that I utilised in the 2101 project preceded to this was really this movement of what might be called the average 500 millimetre ISO yet for rainfall and how in Queensland it moves dramatically to the west. Uh, during these La Nina, during these extreme wet periods. So what did a pavement designer, a planner, an asset manager do about this? There's this variation and it doesn't just happen uh, once in 20 or 30 years, it, it happens more regularly. This is also explained in the Western and Queensland Best Practice Guideline uh, number uh, 30. So Building on that experience and not forgetting it is really quite important. So that's the end of my initial uh, part of the presentation. Over to you, Elena. Thanks a lot, Ty. That's, um, that was really interesting. Uh, we do have a couple of questions. So just on slide 16 here. Um, does uh, performance also consider the capacity of asset managers to undertake maintenance activities? So what can be built into the framework, and I'll start from that position first, is varying the timeliness, etc., of maintenance so we can see what the impact is. The answering your question directly, the what I'd have to say is the main reason for this project existing is to try to lend guidance, etc., to uh, those that are less capable, less capable from a professional capability and knowledge and experience point of view, and 
help improve that, so to tackle it. What we don't encourage is to take the, the next safer design route. What we're trying to encourage is a continuous development, serious development effort to minimise costs. Great, thank you. Um, so slide, I'll just take us to slide 19. Uh, so the question is about the Austroads thickness design chart. Um, so you've obviously shown the chart there. Are there other charts, um, well, other charts are used which would lead to thinner pavements. Can you comment on this and advise what should be used in which circumstances? So this example uh, chart from uh, Austroads Pavement Design Guide, there are other examples uh, for low volume roads uh, with defined uh, levels of traffic where the thickness requirements are less. What would then happen is the performance expectations would be less and the, and the likelihood of the need to rework that pavement would be sooner. Great, thanks Ty. Um, so a couple of questions relating to uh, the rainfall um, and moisture probability. So um, the question is that um, on the, in the previous webinar and um, today, you've talked about the WMO period and using that, but then in slide um, 21, you've also illustrated the recent climate variations. Uh, what data should practitioners be using given the possibility of increased volumes and intensity of rainfall? The view that I've got, especially when we're trying to uh, de develop and defend uh, budgets going forward, we should be doing uh, scenario analysis where starting, say, from standard uh, guidance such as standard reporting, such as the WMO period, but where the significant periods like, uh, which are well now, now pretty well documented, uh, throughout the country and available from the Bureau of Meteorology in in Australia, uh, you would you should really consider uh, doing a scenario analysis, sensitivity analysis that considers variations in climate. Great, thanks, Ty. And um, a couple of people have commented on how uh, interesting this data is that we've got on slide twenty one. Um, is that uh, information readily available to people? Can they access that on the bomb site? They, they can access the information to create this. What we'll do, I think, in a written answer uh, to the question is, is just put in a few notes on how it can be easily extracted. That'd That's be terrific. Yeah, I think there's quite a lot of interest in, in this data. So yeah, that would be really great. And look, I'll just take us back. We've just had another question that relates to slide 16. So I'll take us back to there. Uh, so the question is, how do we consider the quality of construction on the influence of performance? Look, one of the things is, all I'd, all I'd say initially is there's been quite a number of and I'm sure many of us in the audience also have experience from this. Premature failures, we, we have to be careful. Is it, is it failing because of neglect in the, in the processing, in the 
dry back and the moisture compaction, etc., things like that. We need to be always mindful. So what we are oh, we are always finding, we remind ourselves of, is if you don't get some of these basics right, maximum or close to maximum density, optimum moisture content, uh, performance can be compromised later. So it's really emphasizing uh, some of the very basic stuff that we grew up with. Great. All right. Thanks, Ty. Look, that takes us to the end of the questions we've received, and I think that that's a that's pretty good timing for us. So we'll hand this back to you to take you take us into the next um, session. Okay. Thank you. So in this uh, part of the session, I wish to introduce the lifecycle cost of assessment framework and some of the basics behind it, some of the thinking behind it. Hopefully, not new. A lot of basic feet on the ground stuff. Then my colleague Renita will give a demonstration, a guided tour through the uh, pavement lifecycle demonstration tool, which we've developed. Representing the LCC assessment, fundamentally based on benefit cost analysis. But at the end of the day, we're talking about characterising materials and pavements and local conditions in such a way that we can one estimate initial costs and future costs including the operation of vehicles on those sections of road let's call them typical sections of road we need to employ levels of service what we deliver to the community but what we may manage through intervention limits on different uh, distresses, conditions on the pavement or off the pavement and manage these. We employ road performance models so that we can predict forward. We might within those also have some rules of thumb in terms of resealing, resurfacing. We obviously have to test that against practice and also performance evidence in the field. The performance models we have employed in here and calibrated are the, the national Ostroads uh, road deterioration works effects models. But of course, as you move around the country, it's critical to get the inputs to them and be mindful of the need for calibration. And adapt them as necessary. But fundamentally, we've got an economics basis for option selection. We have to define the options, of course. So the case studies on sealed roads are focused on this. The diagram over on the right there, which should be fairly familiar to most people, I usually uh, call it the Goldilocks curve. We're always trying to hit that sweet spot. Every section of road has a sweet spot. But the what we need to be uh, building is a set of options called maintenance standards, let's call them, that combine with their impact over time, how they perform in that environment over time and with traffic, will reduce uh, vehicle operating costs, road user costs, travel time, etc., to a minimum, or, or at least in terms of achieving an optimum, uh, you're seeking the combined minimum. One of the things that we point out is when we have a budget shortfall, the example to the left, 
and the actual budget, we can have an extremely high impact, often by the order of two or three times increase of road user costs. And it's that impact on the community that we're trying to uh, offset by choosing uh, an appropriate intervention. And I'm sure questions will come up about budget constraints, etc. But let's start trying to uh, pick the optimum, best, most fit for purpose for an appropriate case. Level of service, the different indicators. Roughness limits, uh, IRI, some people in Australia will be, we often use the term NASRACAT. Rutting limits, cracking limits, other distresses, and also structural adequacy. And one of the ideas about being able to distinguish between the various uh, indicators, including structural adequacy, is watching we've got sufficient measures that we're not just band-aiding. We're understanding how the overall pavement is performing uh, and not just its functional condition. Maintenance standards and intervention criteria will vary. There's a responsiveness, the short-term measures, etc. But there's a, a other measures to help deliver appropriate service levels to users. So the diagram across on the right is emphasizing uh, different for different traffic levels and roughness band is an appropriate sweet spot, good, mediocre, poor, very poor for different traffic levels. And these also give us some guide to perhaps when we're in a case where we're doing preventative treatments in a condition that we're managing well, or are we needing to treat a, a, a pavement that is perhaps severely or uh, uh, distressed, and hence the type of treatment to fix that will be more substantial. We also have to understand we're managing risks, we're managing roads in poor condition might mean when we get to the very high roughness level, speed limits need to drop. And I see examples of that around the country where I live uh, and, in, and, and when we visit. So all of these absolutely important. Lifecycle-based options assessment, the base scenario, what is it that we're normally doing? How would we normally respond? And often we're behind the uh, from where we should be. We've perhaps not had a preventative uh, philosophy or, or, the, or the capacity, the budget capacity. The key that I think is what we need to offer in this kind of analysis is simply choices. Test and demonstrate whether it's good to be preventative, whether you can wait longer or what. Test the standards go a bit gold-plated, a bit less than what would be optimum. So again, these will deliver levels of service and we can evaluate. We need to understand the performance factors related to the different treatments and the evidence. And particularly, and this is a very uh, big issue with respect to massive, large areas of the continent, I'll describe it as the continent, is the supply of materials, the availability of materials, the costs of them, costs of winning them, 
processing them, transporting them, and the subsequent upkeep costs. So we've I've mentioned already the road deterioration works affects the underlying models of the Austroads national models being adapted to this purpose. And when we start calculating the total transport costs, we're considering all the inputs, agency costs, road user costs, VOCs, some aspect of time. Safety we've not built into the model here at the moment, but what we've done from a pavement condition view is where the pavement conditions are predicted in a particular option to be very poor, speed limits drop. What that does is you then have a disbenefit of longer travel times. So identifying fit for purpose option. So the structure is very uh, conventional. Just to touch on uh, some of the aspects behind the modeling, layer properties and thicknesses we explain in the uh, technical basis and in the guide how to build up your estimate of that. Traffic loading being vital, moisture and climate loads need to understand them and I'll say a wee bit more on that uh, shortly. But we've got these different models, initiation and progression of cracking. At what point does it start and how does it progress? We've also introduced a relative performance factors so that when you're beyond what I call the stitch in time, the rutting and roughness accelerates more, perhaps doubling. And this has been brought together from evidence from our accelerated loading trials. The diagram on the right is that classic uh, road condition deterioration with time, depending what you do to the road. As you can see on the left there, Standard of maintenance uh, is pretty poor. Uh, conditions can deteriorate very quickly. Uh, a reasonable amount of surface maintenance, perhaps drainage maintenance, the slope changes dramatically, becoming much flatter. There's some input from major maintenance and, and the deterioration might go on. And you can go on and on with cycles. One of the issues is whether we're leaving pavements too long until we fix them, or perhaps we might be leaving too long before we resurface them. So the key is to estimate that. And that's where, uh, in a sense, what we need to be doing is uh, putting forward options. Options differ. Controlled deterioration, what's the response if we leave it a bit longer, et cetera. Uh, we can develop that both from experience and from analysis. And again, when we're investigating different strategies, we need to go beyond, you know, uh, the gold plate. There's desirable intervention levels or even better, there's minimum. And we know we get pushed in that direction uh, due to budget constraints. So we need to test the reality. Just to say a bit more, if we if we take these cases of marginal and substandard materials, I've put a diagram up here uh, showing the strength characteristics of a range of samples from Western Queensland. We've used the conventional test, the old CBR test, but there's been other rutting tracks here and other tests done. And we've plotted the results against a degree of saturation. Now, many of you would know if we look at the bottom uh, 
part of the chart, you're seeing CBR values around 60% did DOS, maybe a 40% CBR, you might say, well, that's a good in-place sub-base. Is it a base? Can it be a base? As we go across towards saturation, perhaps 80, above 80, you're getting down to very low values. You would say, could that actually still be a base or a sub-base, or is it a reasonable subgrade? but we're sealing it. If you go up to the top, some of the highest ones, the emerald, I think, is a processed quartzitic gravel. It never gets below 100 CBR. Whether it's wet or whether it's dry, it goes up to very high levels. And it will have similarly relative uh, high values in, in the, with the other measures. So what we're dealing with is a whole range of characteristics from the point of view of their uh, bearing capacity, as well as their plasticity, their grading, et cetera, all of these uh, factors combining into their, their strengths. We're also dealing with uh, foundation conditions. And it's showing here, if we take these presumptive values are fair, belief in presumptive values from the work in the past that I've seen done well in these areas. But if we're in highly plastic clays and they're poorly drained or inundated with moisture seasonally, then your structural uh, foundation support is quite different. If we're fortunate and on the sandy soils, etc., uh, where our pavement structures are both need to be thinner, but in many cases, they'll simply be stronger. So we're looking at that whole capturing uh, the pavement structure in the examples that we build up as options. And to illustrate this in the study, that's what we've done. So bringing those together and in the examples we've done on the lifecycle-based options, We've brought together 12 examples which combine both the pavement and materials and the pavement moisture and drainage conditions uh, with the subgrade support, built up a range of modified structural numbers from the layer strengths and coefficients. Assumptions are behind these. So press, press again, forward, please. Once we put these assumptions into the analysis, then the life cycle trends vary. And as shown on this chart, over on the left are those for the weakest materials or lower standard materials or the poorest subgrade support, drainage conditions, etc. Deterioration in roughness terms is very steep, quite steep. Perhaps 10, 15 years life. Over on the right, both uh, for the well-drained materials, dry uh, pavement conditions, the, the life is very long. And I guess that's the kind of experience we, we, we do achieve in many areas. So the fundamental thing coming from this is the conditions that our pavements are exposed to do fundamentally drive the performance. And we've seen that out in the field. The consideration going forward clearly is how and what part of the what part of the network is 
affected in this manner and what's our best choices given the risks. So what I'd now like to do is hand over to Anita. Thank you. Okay. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, Pavement Lifecycle Costing Demonstration Tool, which we also call the PLCC tool here, is an Excel-based tool with the capabilities to track pavement performance in terms of various indicators, for example, roughness, rotting, cracking, strength, etc., over a 50-year period while applying different treatments. During this analysis, physical condition of the pavement is deteriorated using built-in deterioration models and treatments are triggered and applied based on the user-defined level of service. So here is a screenshot of the main menu of the PLCC tool. Over the next few slides, I would like to go through various features of the tool, which will then be followed by a brief guided tour of the tool itself. So currently, we have three levels of protection in the tool based on the type of the user. The first one is an end user level, where the users can modify the input data and execute an analysis. The second one is an analyst level, which is same as the end user level, but with added functionalities to access the analysis parameters and modify those. And thirdly, there is a full control over the tool. The tool also comes with the tips and guides to help users navigate through various tabs during the data processing and configuration of the analysis. So PLC is a tool, comes with few features. Some needs to be modified by the users and some are fixed. The user-defined features are obviously the input data, which is uh, a key for this analysis, and the input data to include necessary pavement inventory and condition information, such as uh, length, width of the section, traffic on that particular section, also the conditions in terms of roughness, rutting, and strength for that section to be analyzed. Next is the climate data, which is based on the location of the section, and then the road classification. This is actually used to define the level of service, as Tyrone already mentioned earlier, based on road hierarchy or any other asset management policy of that particular agency. And also setting up the analysis year, PCI, and selection of discount rates, et cetera. Now to deteriorate the pavement condition during the analysis period, we have employed within the tool the latest Osdor's road deterioration and work effect models. Models are mostly fixed and embedded within macros within the tool. However, the users can configure modeling calibration factors, use of the related performance factors, etc., if required. There are also three generic treatments currently in place, which are reseal or resurfacing based on the pavement type, obviously then the rehabilitation and also reconstruction. While PLCC is currently limited to these generic treatment types, the treatment triggers as well as the unit rates are configurable by the users. There are also controls for some treatments, for example, shape correction or mainland replace, which are essentially some variants for the resurfacing treatment itself, which can be turned on and off by the user, depending on the preferences. Also, as a part of the modeling suite, 
Road user cost model is also implemented within PLCC. The road user cost is a combination of vehicle operating cost, known as VOC, which is calculated based on vehicle classification data, and also an additional travel time cost for the rough roads. Similar to before, this model itself is fixed, but we can control the use of uh, additional travel time cost, and there are control switches for that. Then comes the analysis execution and output, which is done from the main menu. The outputs from PLCC refreshes after each new run, and the format of the output is not configurable. Currently, the outputs that we get from PLCC includes a detailed time series results of the condition, treatment, and the cost, some economic outputs based on the benefit-cost ratio and uh, marginal BCR, and estimation of remaining structural life as well as remaining surface life for that analyzed sections. So here I have two screenshots of the user-defined features. On, on the left, it's an input sheet. It's an example input from the central West Queensland. And on the right is an example of setting up road user class namings and also setting up the analysis based on the analysis years, uses of CPI, et cetera. Next is an example of the modeling calibration factors. These are all the modeling calibration, Osdorf's modeling calibration factors for different models like rotting progression model, cracking progression model, and roughness. These can be configurable by the users. But to begin with, all the configurable parameters within PLCC2 comes with the provision for the defaults are assigned, which then, be, then can be modified by the users if needed. Now comes an example of an analysis output. The first one is the detailed summary, detailed output where it tracks the progression of various parameters with time, for example, cracking, rotting, RRI treatment over different years. And it also gives us an estimation for that section, how much of the remaining surface life is there and how, what is the remaining structure life for that, for that particular section. And here is also another output, which is a summary result. It is more of a concise form of the detailed output. Here it gives us selected parameters for that particular section, and it um, outlines all the analyzed sections, one in each row, like ID 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, so on. So now I would like to switch to the tool and briefly go through the features explained so far. Can you see uh, the input master sheet, the Excel file, Elena? Yes, we can. Thanks, Renita. Thank you. Uh, so this is the input master sheet, and this is actually the example from this current project where you can see different type of materials, standard, well-drained, uh, marginal, well-drained, and weight sofa. And here are all relevant inputs that we need, like pavement type, road length, road width, uh, climate zone, and also high-speed data, roughness, rutting, cracking, and as well as the traffic counts, and then pavement strength information in terms of structural numbers, CBR, and also the treatment history saying when the pavement was last rehabilitated or resurfaced, etc. Now, under advanced setting, 
Here is the network level deterioration model. This is the table with the calibration factors that are configurable by the users, as I shown earlier as a screenshot. As you can see, the defaults are always one for the rotting model and the cracking is also used one and our roughness is one. So this gives uh, the base to begin the analysis, but the users can modify it based on whatever is observed locally, whether there is a high progression trend or low progression trend to match the trend, the calibration factors can be adjusted accordingly. Also, another configurable part is the treatment triggers. Here we have three generic treatments, as I mentioned earlier, resurfacing, rehabilitation, and reconstruction. And all of them has different triggers in terms of IRI, rotting, uh, cracking strength. So these numbers here can be changed by the users to, to, to match the level of service for any particular road class. Here is the detailed uh, analysis results. As I told earlier, it tracks progression of various uh, parameters over time. And it also, it also flags a treatment when it is triggered. For example, here we have a treatment triggered and the coding, it has been coded as one. And on the top left, it tells us what one means. One is a reseal. Then if it's a six dash one, that means a reconstruction that's triggered by structural age and so on. So it tracks that it tracks the treatments, resets the results accordingly, and also shows us the 50-year progression for section by section. So summary result, on the other hand, that's more like a one-line result for each row. And it still tells us when the first surfacing treatment is required and what the treatment would be and what a structural treatment is required and what when it, it's that happening and also how many remaining surface life and structural life is available for that particular section. We can also get a works program from this tool, which tells us for each section what work needs to be done in different years. So for this section in particular, let's say 2039 followed by 2059 and 2068, and it also tells us the treatment reseal followed by reseal and another rehabilitation. And as I mentioned earlier, the tool has the user tips and guides specific for each of the sections, which will help users to navigate through the data entry process and also while running the analysis. It tells which of the parameters can be changed and which are fixed. And I guess that's all from me for now. Uh, thanks for listening. Over to you, Tyrone. Thank you, Renita. So just to recap, what I wish to just cover in this uh, in, a, in the next few minutes is the PLCC results and how we've interpreted them in this example. And again, the whole approach is flexible enough to be applied in different circumstances, change the assumptions, etc., and be reanalyzed. So it really is trying to demonstrate that. What I tried to emphasize earlier is this massive difference that can happen. Uh, even with marginal materials, and those are de described typically as our ridge gravels and other things out in the, uh, the west of Queensland and out in parts of uh, all of the states, really, uh, where they're a bit off your conventional materials, but they're not too far away. 
And once you get them dried back, they're actually quite strong and stable. So under dry uh, conditions, they can perform well. The challenge is when it's wet. And for your non-standard materials where you might be talking about extremely high proportions of say the passing the four to five sieve or 70 or 80 or more percent and high plasticity, you're talking about really quite moisture sensitive materials. So to take the example on the, on the right, the, the rate of development of roughness, rutting, et cetera, would be extremely steep in those, uh, quite steep in those conditions. If they can be protected or in a dry condition, uh, in a dry climatic area with little chance of significant flooding, et cetera, then performance can be extend 20, 25 years and more. So the, the key is the different conditions. So what we've then done is taken those, those performance curves, et cetera, and basically applied vehicle operating cost models, et cetera, to them, travel time and, and the like. And we've built up total transport costs for them. In this example, we're starting with discounted road agency costs. And along the x-axis, we're showing how they change with haul distance. And the ones that will change the most, and I'll highlight those initially, uh, from a supply point of view, would be the ridge gravels or the marginal materials and the standard materials that hit, that hold over longer distances. The, pro the processing costs would be higher. That needs to be built in. But the reason for the examples on the right, both the marginal materials, which is the, the fourth uh, column in, in Bran, and then the, uh, the sixth column uh, with the substandard materials when they're wet, etc. The reason that they're building up the, the road agency costs is because of the repeat treatments over time as uh, the past intervention limits sooner in the, in, the, in the life cycle. So taking that into account is uh, very important. If we then look at it in terms of the total transport costs, and this is what this uh, example is about, again, you've got whole distance on the right. The well-drained dry solutions are down at the bottom. The poorly drained wet for the marginal particularly and the substandard are much higher up. So you have this separation. So the green, again, well-drained drying, many of them are performing well. Uh, so in appropriate circumstances, the moisture conditions will support the use. In inappropriate cases where conditions are not favorable and we, uh, uh, pavement weakness, et cetera, occurs in both the upper part of the pavement, perhaps in the lower part of the pavement, then you're challenged. So it's using these uh, interpreting these, uh, this analysis that's led us to the conclusions on this slide. As a general uh, finding, dry, well-maintained, marginal materials minimise road agency costs even for up to quite long hauls. Non-standard materials eventually, for these low to uh, moderate traffic levels, may still be valuable. Uh, but 
only when the, the, the whole distance for alternatives becomes a bit far. Where the moisture conditions then become wet, drainage poor, etc., the RACs are always minimised by use of standard materials. So that risk element is absolutely uh, critical. From the total transport uh, cost point of view, the marginal materials uh, minimise uh, total transport costs for almost all those whole distances that we tested. Uh, they, again, they've got that benefit that when you dry them back, they are pretty solid. And of course, they need to pass criteria for those. It's similar perhaps to a, a Western Queensland base one material. High moisture conditions, then they then you're in a challenge, and really the case is to uh, push uh, push for standard materials, and they'll minimise your whole distances. So it definitely depends on the circumstances. I illustrated that earlier, and really the lessons going forward is simply to know your moisture risks, the availability of materials. Uh, what impact moisture will have on performance. Account for the total pavement system, the pavement, the subgrade, the drainage exposure to moisture and traffic loads. All very standard, but calibrate performance uh, to your local circumstances, and that will be elaborated a bit more, or at least knowledge on that will be elaborated a bit more in the next section of this presentation and ensure road provision and upkeep costs are known. One of the biggest issues I find is that band-aid costs that often sustain much of our network are not accounted for in the business case going forward. I've seen many cases where band-aid costs are really high and the best solution would have been a, a more sustainable, uh, proper, uh, rehabilitation, etc., of that pavement, provision of drainage, etc. They're often hidden. They should be available. Thank you. Any questions? Uh, thanks, Tyrone. That was really great. And thanks, uh, Renita, as well. We do have a lot of questions. So, um, quite a few questions about about um, level of service. Uh, so sorry, I just need to take us to the level of service slide. Okay, so in terms of level of service, um, how much is macro and micro texture skid resistance being adopted as a trigger for maintenance in Australian states? So I generally say, a, so we've not been focusing on that aspect. We're not looking at the micro, micro, texture from a point of view of what I would say surfacing performance that could arise through embedment into a soft base. Uh, it is being considered in a number of states in, in Victoria, Tasmania, New South Wales, in parts of Queensland, uh, in WA as well. So it is considered. It's really in the in the case of these examples that we're showing it's looking at the best use of local materials in the pavement as opposed to in the surfacing. But yes, those aspects are considered by the states and territories. 
Okay. And also, um, does level of service um, also depend on speed? Is that um, considered? So, yes. In uh, one of the aspects that I dropped off here is the level of service does depend on speed. We've also found from our community surveys that the, the demand for, let's say, smooth, smooth roads is less when they, where, where there's lower speeds. And you can imagine the, the shocks or the risk, the safety risk is appropriate, uh, the safety risk at a lower speed level related to condition is less of an issue. So that that is a consideration. Higher speeds demand lower ride, better ride quality and, um, and less rutting, etc. Okay, thanks. Tom. If I might just say one thing on that, it's for that reason that we've built in a trigger that once you go uh, up to these higher roughness states, that we've built in the disbenefit that really speeds would normally be dropped uh, and posted speed limits may be changed. Okay. Uh, at least for a temporary uh, measure. Yeah. Thanks, thanks, Ty. Um, so uh, we have a question that relates to slide 26. Uh, so most of the time, low IRI values show AC surfaced roads having alligator cracks with no patches. If so, is it reasonable to use only IRI values to measure the performance? Yeah. Well, I certainly agree with you. IRI has its place and it has its place for certain types of pavements and certain points in the life. And whereas we have had, uh, we've presented quite an emphasis on roughness in some of these diagrams, we're also monitoring, triggering, modeling on other factors, cracking, rutting, etc. So your observation is co correct. It needs to be appropriate. Right. Thank you. Um, so I'll just take us on to slide 32. Um, Renita, can I get you to um, unmute yourself now? We do have lots of questions about the tool. Um, the first question, I suppose, is really around its availability. Lots of people have asked um, how they might get access to it and um, how it will be made available. Uh, thank you, Elena, for the question. Yes, um, this tool actually has been developed as a part of Parallel Osros project, which is 6143. The tool will be available as a part of that project. Great. Thanks. And I've got a few questions that were sort of sit on this slide. So the first is, what measure of strength does the tool use? Okay, we are currently using a um, SNC. Uh, and uh, there are many ways we can calculate the SNC. The tool has a provision to calculate SNC based on if there is a deflection data available, then it calculates SNC based on deflection information. Otherwise, we calculate the in-service SNC from an SN and a subgrade information, which is CBR. And also there is option to um, provision to have some default SNC values if the other two options are not available, like if there is not enough data for deflection or CBR, et cetera. Okay. There's quite a few questions about whether um, the models um, used by the PLCC are similar to the HDM4 performance prediction models. 
Uh, no, currently PLCC has the OSROADS uh, road deterioration and walk effect models uh, coded there because OSROADS models, um, it, they're whole, uh, like thoroughly calibrated for the Australian condition and that's why it has been implemented here. Right, and so if people wanted to use that um, tool over, overseas, um, would they be able to manipulate the data in a way that would work for local conditions? Tyrone, can you please add something to that? Look, we, I wouldn't be encouraging that kind of route. I think uh, with the simplicity of this whole framework in the tools, I'd be saying where you've got confidence in models that suit your conditions, use them. But also be mindful that one of the aspects that has come out very strongly in the Ostroads uh, models is where the circumstances are is appropriate. They've, be, they've been very good at explaining performance, uh, the structural aspects particularly. Then again, in different parts of the country, uh, those aspects need to be tuned differently. So I'd be saying be a bit careful about simply taking, I'm not going to call it a black box, it's a very simple box in a way, <laughs> and, and calibrating it too much locally. Uh, so just be mindful of that. The comparison with HDM, I'll just make a comment. What this model does do is it incorporates the interaction of parameters, and that's an HDM technology idea, not a regression model. So it incorporates the interaction of cracking, rutting, and roughness, for instance. Those are important things. Uh, that's where the similarity in a way ends because it, the composition of the equations are based on observations within uh, the Australian continent. Great. Well, look, we do have many, many more questions about the tool, but I think we should probably leave those and we can try and return to them um, and uh, in the next session if we have enough time, but we will respond to all of your questions in a written Q&A. So um, don't feel as though uh, you won't have your questions answered. We'll certainly get to them, but we just might not get them to them today. So I am going to hand over now to Phil um, to take us through the case study from Central Western Queensland. Okay, thank you. And uh, thanks, Ty and Renita, and uh, g'day to everyone. So today we're just going to go through a case study in Central West Queensland uh, around some materials. Um, if I would recommend that uh, you also, maybe if you haven't already, have a look at the webinar one, which was about a week or so ago, we went through quite extensively a bit more about each material and uh, its properties and also the geology uh, and looked into the Austroads material risk assessment, which is covered under the two reports on your right there. Also want to reference uh, Western Queensland Best Practice Guidelines in Queensland, Main Roads, and the ARB document, Pavements, Material and Road Building, which Ty has already chatted about, so I won't spend much time there. I'd also like to acknowledge uh, Main Roads uh, staff in Central West Queensland in Bar Calden, uh, Eric Denham and Rod Adams and their team, who helped extensively with um, uh, both data and, uh, and site visits and the like. So where are we talking? Central West Queensland. Um, so you can see what area we're talking. If we just zoom in a little bit and have a closer look. So that, that picture there represents about 1,000 kilometres wide by 500 kilometres high. So it's a large remote area of Queensland. 
um, extensive range of climate and uh, in the east, a bit wetter, in the west, a bit much drier, and, and uh, also the soil types, which you'll see unfold as we go through. Um, in this area, it's quite common because of the distances involved, quality gravels uh, can be scarce. And so there's a lot of decision-making around, well, what gravel are we gonna use? Um, how, what risk are we prepared to take? And so we're gonna explore some of that. Typically in this area, many of the remoter areas get a thin pavement, 150 to 200 mils of non-standard gravel or low standard gravel even, and uh, straight on direct on subgrade, whatever that subgrade might be, whether it be sandy silts or whether it be clay and so on. So there's a bit of background. So just to give you a bit of an idea of what we're talking about, I'm gonna show you a few pictures of the roads um, that are part of this study. And I think overall, there was about 700 odd kilometers in the study uh, where data and site visits uh, were brought together. Now, so here we are on the, uh, the Bulli-Baduri section, the Diamond Tenor Development Road, and you can see very remote, uh, generally dry, and we visited this whole area after extensive rainfall in, uh, what was that, 2018, early 2018, what I mean, 19, sorry. Um, and you'll see some of the slides are quite green. Now that's probably at an unusual time. In fact, uh, some of the roads we saw some failures caused by the, the extensive rainfall. And that was a period up on, when they actually had a lot of cattle die in, uh, in some of the agricultural areas uh, because it got cold immediately after lots of rain. So the climate stuff that um, Ty emphasised is important and certainly the material risk assessment that the Austroads goes through, the Austroads method goes through, as discussed in webinar one, looks at traffic, climate and gravel characteristics. So just continuing on with the roads, here we are up the Hewenden Winton Road, and you can see it's on reactive clays with by the cracking there, yeah, slightly elevated formation. Just note the state of interest, the line marking regimes as we go through in an attempt to control or, or release control of where the heavy traffic um, actually runs so that we can extend the life of our pavements. So you can see here just the lane lying down the middle, some cracking there, slightly elevated formations, a lot of grass here and um, certainly reactive soil country. Once again, another view, different line marking. You can see where the track trucks tend to run. And another to encourage the uh, trucks to wander and to maximise pavement life so we're not getting rutting and constant wear and loading in one spot. And a lot of these uh, things are experimental, but they do make a lot of sense and they do have an effect on the pavement, as you'd appreciate. Changing roads out on the Blackwall Jericho Road, you can see immediately the environment has changed. Uh, loamy country, probably sandy loams, much stiffer, um, no cracking, etc. Bam on Alpha, maybe somewhere in between, um, medium clays. And uh, you know, I've got a few surface issues there in that particular shot. National Highway, and you'll see some performance slides later. Uh, typically elevated formations, culverts in place, uh, wider pavements, sealed shoulders, um, drains um, uh, as wide out as possible to shed the water. 
generally flat rolling country um, and generally pavements would be designed to a higher level of design. So going forward in the next few minutes, we'll just quickly touch on the gravel characteristics and the specifications. And we're gonna have a look at the road performance. Now, just briefly in terms of grading, which engineers and practitioners would be used to looking at, we can see that, sorry, the blue there initially is a TMR specification gravel. And the blue thick line is typically where a grading might be with the light blue area showing the envelope. So in the Western Queensland best practice guidelines, the gray area shown there is, is actually for a sub-base. So a wide variety of materials are allowed. When you go to base alternative two, it starts to narrow down, but still a very wide profile. Similarly with base one, it's slowly approaching the standard gravel, but still generally much finer. Now we'll just have a look at a couple of the actual gravels. Some of the typical ridge gravels have a what we call an armchair grading because of the dip in the middle there, although that's somewhat um, hidden there, um, but and generally finer down the, uh, the bottom end. So the ridge gravels, and we'll talk about those, I'll show you some photos of those in a second, and in the performance we'll have a look at briefly. Winton sandstones, much, much finer. So Winton sandstone, we're not talking about the sandstones that's used in building blocks of buildings, uh, heritage buildings around Australia, for example, they're much, much different. And this is a soft sedimentary stone. And I'll show you some more details about that in a second. And the last one there I'd just like to put up is the mud rock, which is a metamorphosed sort of mudstone or siltstone, and um, usually crushed, uh, often primary crushed. And typically we're getting a finer product uh, than the standard gradings but still with some decent rock in it. So look just briefly on the, on the uh, materials. Let's have a look at the sandstone, the Witten sandstone. And you can see, if we just zoom in a bit, that it's quite a sedimentary. You can see by the layering there, it's quite a, a sedimentary rock, very soft processing generally by grid roller in the olden days, maybe stabiliser, reclaimer uh, in, in uh, recent times. And it does break down under construction practices compaction and the like. So you have to be careful how you uh, use the material. We're obviously in dinosaur country up this way and uh, I'll encourage you to visit the site when we're allowed to again. Now, just quickly on, on properties, these are typical properties and just highlighting the, the uh, linear shrinkage there. If we have a look at the Western Queensland best practice guidelines and the specifications, it generally aligns with what we would say is a sub-base material. And if we add to that a pit, uh, a local pit recently used and have a look at those results, we can see generally that yes, that's what it is. It aligns with that sub-base uh, standard. So it's a very fine material, high in shrinkage. Um, it's a low end material and we have to be careful where we use that. And that's where the Austro's material classification and risk assessment process comes in. Just looking at ridge gravel for a second, Generally, uh, ironstone type gravels, uh, a lot of oversize, which has to be crushed down and often in, uh, used in the where you want a better pavement. So here uh, you can, if I zoom in again, probably best. Yep, you see we've got crushed particles and we've got naturally rounded particles. So you're getting a variety of stone through the mix that's both natural and 
crushed. Now the amount of crushing and the amount of fines would be depending on the processing. And we tend to aim for what we need, depending on the road category, the road type, and what decision has been made around what's affordable. And I guess some consideration of the risk of the product. So here you can see typical properties. And I just wanna make the point that getting to those properties usually takes some processing of some type and cost involved in that. Okay, we're gonna talk about performance. Um, and I'll go through this slide. Um, okay, initially, what have we got here? So obviously we've got time along the x-axis here. We've got roughness in NASA roughness counts up the uh, primary left axis, uh, vertical axis, and we've got rutting up the secondary right-hand side axis. Now, in this particular case, we've got a pavement that has uh, in its life uh, existed around these levels of rutting and roughness. And then all of a sudden a treatment has occurred and that's confirmed by the pavement treatment age down here is zero, going up to six years old. At 2018. Now, I just wanted to, we, we focused the study on performance in not focusing on absolute values of roughness or rutting. What we were looking at is the progression or the rate of deterioration over time. And the classic example would be there is that you could have a 40 year old pavement that uh, might be in poor condition now, but it's taken 40 years to get there. And so that's the information that we're trying to distill to make a judgment about performance. So we could say that a 40-year-old pavement in poor condition, in absolute condition, is actually a good performer because it took 40 years to get that condition and held together quite well. Now, a few of the other key parameters we look at, we look at cracking, and I'll show you some more in the next slide. But we also, what I want to point out on this slide is the pavement maintenance costs in this top row here. So these pavement maintenance costs, Main Roads uh, has an extensive um, database of 20 years minimum of maintenance costs. Um, and you can see here that if we have a look at the, the average cost per year, um, prior, sorry, greater than time zero, you can see we've got about 4,000 a year. And we've got two red blips. Now that indicates, well, okay, something has happened where they had to go to this particular segment, and these are one kilometer segments, and they actually had to do some pavement works that's well above any other costs in that area. And they've done that twice, five years apart. So there's a bit of a flag there. And you'll see in a few slides time how we've arrived at some rules about how to consider pavement maintenance. Just so you're aware that underneath there is routine maintenance. So that's the total routine maintenance, lines, signs, everything. Um, but here in this top row is just pavement maintenance. So stuff done structurally or to the surface to, to hold it together, such as pothole, surface correction, crack filling and the like. You see there's a marked difference. For the years prior to it being uh, reconstructed, it actually had a low cost regime. So the question obviously comes to mind was why was it reconstructed? Roughness is not excessive. So the, the explanation of this is it failed after a wet event. Now, if we have a look at the wet event around 2011, 2012, uh, we can see that we've got a light blue to medium blue colors of rainfall, and for that area, that's that's quite a lot of rain. Once again, just prior to this $14,000 here being required, it rained in the previous year. Now, the data is 
is year-based. And so it gives us a bit of an insight into the possible um, effect of wet weather. So we all also looked at um, the usual parameters, speed limit, traffic volumes, environmental zone, that's dry reactive. I'll go more into that in a second. Terrain type and site drainage, total cracking, uh, and the most recent uh, cracking uh, because of reseals. We can also see the layering information. So we can see that this is a cement modified, cement modified pavement, uh, 250 mils thick, and it was placed in 2012. It's got a, three seals that were done in the same year, a primer seal, a geotextile seal to prevent it from cracking, and a further seal uh, over the top, trying to ensure that waterproofness over these low standard materials is actually kept and maintained at a high level. The other things I can just briefly point out is that down here in rough, roughness progression details, which is the slope of that line that you saw in the first chart, we're talking quite a high rate of five and a half counts per kilometre per year. And we, we've then looked at each parameter and developed some criteria. Just so you can see here that that segment was rated as poor. And each of the 700 segments was looked at and assessed by a panel of five and looked at all the parameters and looked at and come to a consensus view on the performance. So just summarizing those parameters, I'll just quickly flick through. You can see here that for each design traffic area, and that's coincides with the material risk assessment process in the Austrade's manual, the roughness progression, the average pavement maintenance spend per year, the high pavement spend, in other words, what those little blips that occur from time to time, and you want to identify those. Rutting versus age, cracking versus age, and then we can assign some performance, poor, fair, or good. And we can do that for each of the criteria, each of the, sorry, uh, traffic ranges, and you can see the change in criteria uh, uh, provided. Now, I wouldn't say that these are perfect, but they are a great way to assess performance, a great start. So what can we do with that? We can start plotting all of that information across this, the whole network, and on this particular chart, you can see that we're looking at pavement performance by road and climate zone. So just like the on the left-hand side of this chart, you can see that there's a lot of red and orange and, and green. And this happens to be the dry reactive zones of all of these road numbers, all of these roads that we visited. On the right-hand side, you can see that it's DNR, so it's dry, non-reactive areas, subgrade areas for all of the same roads. So the one I've highlighted there with the blue arrow is, um, is showing that uh, generally good performance. The gray indicates that there's just some data that was might, might be new, couldn't be used, was irrelevant um, for that particular road at that time. Now, what I want to highlight also is that it's easy to see in this chart that reactive materials or subgrade materials, high silty clays, high shrink swells, et cetera, as intuitively we'd know as engineers and practitioners, is that you tend to get poorer performance. And this is exactly what we see here um, for varying degrees. So on the Clam and Alpha Road, this is the arrow that we're looking at here. If we have a closer look at age for a second, we can see that I think we're talking about the average age in the greater than 20 year category is about 27 years. And so we're getting great performance there for a medium risk gravel. And that's probably the other point I need to point out here is that 
This is a medium risk gravel assessed by the uh, Australia risk classification. So we've got a medium risk gravel, generally on a, a non-reactive subgrade, and it's performing well, lasting a long time. We've got some new pavements there um, that are going okay. And obviously with some new data, we, we, we can't get uh, meaningful data early on in its, on its life until we get a few years of history. Uh, we've got a little red blip there, and that's one we want to look into and investigate. So just taking that strategy, having a look at the next section, we've got a very high risk gravel uh, here. So the Winton sandstone in this particular case was deemed a very high risk gravel for a 20 year traffic loading. It was actually deemed a medium risk for a 10 year traffic loading. So you can see that you can get a different outcome based on the input parameters under the assessment. So some gravels you can expect to get 10 years out, but push them a bit too far and maybe you're gonna get poorer performance. Interesting. So let's have a look at the Hewitt and Winton Road, which is we have most of the, two, of the road, 210 kilometers on a dry reactive subgrade. We have only five kilometers on non-reactive subgrade. Now just having a look at generally the performance profiles, and you can see that there's a lot more um, orange and red compared to the, in the reactive areas compared to the non-reactive areas. And we've got a green there of about 60%. So 60% of the time, we're getting good performance. So let's have a bit of a closer look at that. In terms of life cycle costing analysis and getting our models right, it's important to understand the historic data and the performance so that you, we can classify the right number of categories of payment so that we can classify the right type of performance. One of the criticisms by CEOs and high-level managers on asset management modeling consistently is that, hang on, we don't see that match the reality out there. What's going on? You know, you, you're saying that it's going to fall apart in X year's time. Well, we haven't seen that in the last 20 years. So we have to make sure that our models are right. Uh, why is there such a marked di difference between a model's environment and the current environment? So in trying to get our models right, we need to look at this type of information. So this information here elaborates on the Hewitt and Witten Road and has a look into the age categories. It looks into the age categories based on the two pavement types that we discovered on this road, one generally being granular and the other cemented. So having a look at the left-hand side chart first, we can see that we've got 100 kilometres of about the 200-odd kilometres of road, about 50%, well into its 15, 20-year-plus life and performing okay. Now this is a Witten sandstone and a very fine grain material. It does have some issues when it rains and keeping the drainage uh, working is, is absolutely paramount. Now we had a there's, a, there's a bit of a blip here. What's this five to 10? Now we've had a, a brief look at that. We think there's actually some, they're actually probably cemented pavements and we, we need to uh, have a data and area there and we need to look into that a bit further. So that's a degree of performance profile that we could uh, nut down and apply to um, our pavements in our network modeling. Interestingly, cemented pavements have occurred in two chunks. Now, these respond to wet events. And we can see that for this particular material in this particular area with this traffic loading, initially, we about five years to 10 years into its life, we had an uh, event that caused about 14 in 200 kilometers 14 kilometers and 200 kilometers to, to fail and to be reconstructed. In the bigger wet events of about 10 years ago, we, we saw about 50 kilometers fail. 
So the question that comes up is, um, are we doing the right treatments? Now, these cemented treatments, when they were done, haven't been performing overly well. And that's what this data is showing here. It's showing that they've got fair performance and there's a degree or a much higher degree of poor performance. So the, the more rigid pavement is cracking and, and causing roughness and so on. Now we could uh, we could probably talk about that for days, but we'll keep moving on. Now the last one I quickly want to show is the median risk ridge gravel that was used on the Landsborough Highway, which is a national highway. And just quickly, we, we had a look at the data. We've got the um, <clears throat> Reactive soil areas, about 80 kilometres, and the non-reactive soil areas, about 20 kilometres, about a 100 kilometre link. And we're getting excellent performance in both. So certainly in the non-reactive, it's all green. In the uh, reactive soil, we've got a bit of fair pavement and a tiny bit of poor. Now, the ages of these pavements, I think in the non-reactive area was about average age of 44 years. And the average age in the reactive soil area was about, I think, 37 or something like that. So we're getting excellent performance with a medium risk gravel. Now, probably on the national highway, as, as mentioned before on the photos, we, we're probably getting a higher level of design with a higher level or a paid attention to what type of gravel to put down and its performance characteristics. And so this reflects the performance of those decisions. Interestingly, and I just want to quickly point out, once again, we, there's only a small number of cemented pavements on this road and most likely cemented after flood events and, and rainfall events. And we've only got eight kilometres, so that's about 8%. And we're not getting great performance there. They're young. We wouldn't jump to too many conclusions, but we certainly need to look at that closer. So in summary, what do we make of all this? We're certainly getting greater insight into road performance. And obviously areas of reactive soil need to be addressed. We need to consider the, the Austroads material risk assessment process and what the risk says about that, and then think about okay, where are we putting it in the field? What type of subgrade soil? You can have a, a poor gravel on a non reactive soil, and it can perform well. We need to have a think about our, our treatments, uh, some of our alternative treatments after rain events and so on. Now, we wouldn't categorically rule them out as being poor and not worthwhile, but we would say that it probably needs a bit more study and a bit more consideration, and certainly from a life cycle cost analysis perspective, having a look at what is the long-term budgetary outcomes and impacts. So defining an acceptable pavement performance profile and accounting for full life cycle costs is where we need to head. Are we making great decisions? Or are we making poor decisions which are costing the taxpayer and the ratepayer more in the long run? So confirming the um, flood and major rainfall impacts do affect performance, especially on low-end materials. And um, that's certainly something that with the risk assessment model component, we should be considering um, more carefully in the future. Thanks a lot, Phil. And um, hi, everyone. We are a little over time, um, but we have got a couple of questions. So I'll just quickly run those by you, Phil. Um, the first one is around this chart. And um, just asking, can you explain the IRI values used in the graph? Um, is that average roughness or is it a 70% roughness value? Yeah, good question. So the 
roughness values used, uh, they are translatable from IRA. We've, de we've displayed them in NASA roughness counts uh, down the left-hand side there. They are relatable though. And to answer your question, these are generally one kilometer segments and the uh, average value has been used over that segment. Right, thank you. And a um, couple of questions just in relation to the slides that you showed earlier in the presentation. There we go. So a question is in relation to the, um, the cracking that you can see in, in this image. Um, how do you treat those sorts of wide cracks? Yeah, a common question and uh, one of uh, many engineers' uh, concerns. So, um, look, to give you a short answer, that there are a range of treatments um, from, obviously, from a maintenance point of view, you want to fill those cracks as soon as possible. That may not stop the cracking, <coughs> excuse me, um, but you want, to, you want to make sure you've got some sort of crack filling program. Now, there's a range of products you know, from emulsion sands, emulsion aggregates, to polymer uh, crack filling products, to even geotextile stripping strips that can be applied, band-aids band if you like, or bandages. So there, and sometimes you combine those treatments. You'd also, once maybe you've got those filled and those have settled down with a bit of traffic, you may want to consider a, 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 either a geotextile type seal over that. Um, now geotextiles have the limitation. If the cracking is too large, they will tear the geotextiles. But more often than not, they work. And uh, there's a whole specialist um, technical criteria around geotextile sealing. But there's some of the options. And uh, I hope that answers the question. Great, thank you. And just in terms of the um, experimental treatments where uh, there are no lines marked on the road, um, a couple of people have expressed, I suppose, safety concerns about, about that. Um, was that considered in, in the trials? Okay, so th this is real life network. It is as it is. And the reason there's no line marking on that road there is because of the extremely low traffic. We're talking probably typically less than 80 vehicles a day and quite commonly less than 50. So um, the width is there and guideposts are provided in Australia. And so although you can't see too many in that photo, I admit, but typically that is the case. So line marking, certainly the safety aspects is not part of our project in terms of pavement performance, um, but there is a large, vast majority of the network that is very low traffic and no line marking is provided, except sometimes line marking can be provided where there's tight vertical or horizontal geometry for safety purposes, along with chevron signs to indicate that there's a change in alignment. So typically targeted line marking might, might be employed but as far as our study, we weren't too concerned about the line marking, but just an interesting note. Yeah, I suppose it was really in relation to that, that sort of line where there was no centre line, where you were trying yeah. to direct the heavy vehicles to sort of drift across the, the road. Right. So in, in that case, um, similarly, we're talking probably around, I think, less than 150 vehicles a day, certainly well less than that. And so it is a judgment call. It is an assessment call. I don't think there's very, very few safety issues there, uh, mainly in relation to uh, traffic traveling at night. Um, you have very low volumes of traffic traveling at night and you have very flat country. Uh, what's the consequence of coming off the road? 
not high, it's very flat. Great, okay, thank you. Look, I think guys, we will um, uh, call uh, the end there, I think. Um, so we have got a large number of questions that we didn't get to. I do apologise, but um, we will certainly answer all of them in a written Q&A. And um, just before we close off, I will just uh, bring up the upcoming webinars that we have, uh, particularly next week's um, session, which relates to the application of the life cycle costing framework to unsealed roads. So that's sort of the partner session for today. Um, so if you haven't already, please do sign up for that. Um, you also might be interested in the um, use of a, a procurement tool for road projects. Um, that session is on the 31st of July. It's going to be looking at the use of a new decision-making tool. And also um, on the 11th of August, there's a project update um, looking at a um, an update of the Australian standard that's related to bitumen and related materials. So that might be of interest as well. I think that standard one isn't quite up on our website yet, but it will be very, very soon. So thank you, everybody. Thanks for sticking in with us. We are um, almost 15 minutes over time. So thank you very much for sticking through with us. Thanks so much for all of your great questions, like just really good questions. And thank you so much to Ty, Renita and to Phil, um, a really terrific session today. Lots of people are sending through their thanks. Um, and we will, as we close out, you will get a pop-up um, survey on your screen. If you can take a few minutes to fill that in for us, it's very helpful for us to understand what worked, what didn't work for you, so we can shape our um, presentations in the future. So um, Ty, Renita, Phil, thanks. Um, we'll see you later. And everybody, we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.